and affliction. We have been comforted about you. Three, verse six, we're going to see essentially Paul's first response to the news that Timothy had brought back. He's going to speak about that now. So Paul here now begins to cover how he was pleased with how the church was thriving in the midst of so much persecution from the outside world. So in turn, then, as we look at this text, we're going to see, as our title says, what is a flourishing church? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And if not now, you're probably asking. What does it look like? Even though these Thessalonians were far from a perfect church, they had sins and issues amongst themselves. But whatever the case, still the principles that are laid out here about a flourishing church are, are ones that we can apply to our own church. We can apply to ourselves, apply amongst us individually as we go about our daily life as Christians, as we come together as Christians. Because remember, Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And what we have here is Paul revealing in part, not everything, but in part to us what the abundant life of Christ looks like in a church context. What a life that has been freed by the gospel looks like in the world that's so enslaved to sin and death. What a flourishing church of life, life looks like. So let's get, into, let's get into our text and see how we can be encouraged to embrace and flourish in our life of freedom in Jesus. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Now, interesting fact, from the Greek here, right, without getting all caught up in it, when he says, but now that, it means that Paul basically began to write this letter to the Thessalonians as soon as he heard the good news from Timothy. I mean, that was like, let's start writing, let's go. He just got so excited because the news wasn't just news, but it was good news, or put differently, it was what was, it was what Paul was looking for to confirm that the church was spiritually healthy, spiritually flourishing, and spiritually growing. But what he points out is not what we would expect from a modern-day view of what a flourishing church looks like. It's not typically the markers we look for to see if a church is healthy and vibrant. If you read any books or things like that, this is, he doesn't say the typical things here. Listen what he says of that he gets excited about as the markers of a healthy church. And then think about what he doesn't bring up as a marker of a healthy church. Okay, so it says in 1 Thessalonians 3.6, brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly as, and long to see us as we long to see you. Notice the first thing that comes to his mind and what he was looking for, that there's no mention of numbers in regards to this good news. 
There's no mention of how many baptisms they had. Oh, praise the Lord, you had 22 baptisms. There's no mention of how they've grown numerically in the church. Oh, you guys have grown so much. You're thousands upon thousands. There's no mention of their growing in tithing or offerings. Like, oh, wow, you guys are giving so much of yourselves financially to the church and helping each other. There's no mention of a church budget growing. Like, wow, look how big you guys can build now. None of those things are what Paul was looking for. None of those things were what drove Paul to be overjoyed. That wasn't the first thing he's listing there. Now, are those things bad to look at? Are we never look at those things? Like, oh yeah, ne don't ever measure those things. No, no. But the reality is those things aren't necessarily the markers of a flourishing church. For those things can happen in very, very spiritually unhealthy churches. Nasty churches. Churches that you go like, ooh, something's up. But for Paul, what uplifted his soul was that they had first faith in Christ. And secondly, that they had a love for each other and for Paul and his team. And that order is important. That order is so important from having faith, because by having faith in Christ, it will create a love for others, especially for the Christian brethren. Love flows from faith, not the other way around. So side note, okay, the side note here, you know, take out your notes. If you're having a hard time loving someone, or even more particularly, someone in the church, someone, some Christian brother or sister in your life, for context, right? Because he's talking about context. We're called to love all people, but let's say in the church. You have to check your faith in Christ. Where are you standing in regards to Christ, in regards to person X, Y, or Z? Think about, are you making your relationship with this person about honoring you or about honoring Christ? Are you looking to see what will bring glory to Jesus in this hard, exhausting, really pulling relationship? Or are you looking for what will bring your personal comfort and glory to yourself? And it has nothing really to do with Jesus. Are you concerned about being right? I mean, this is even just in marriages between Christian, Christian people. Are you concerned about being right? Or are you concerned about what will magnify? Are you, being, uh, um, are you concerned what will magnify the grace and truth of Jesus Christ in the other person? Or is it about being right? Are you trying to change them to your standards and ways? Or are you pointing them to the one who can bring real meaningful change to their hearts, but on his time and not yours? Are you trying to place chains on this person to keep them in line? Or are you reminding them of how they now have no chains on them, but are free in Jesus? Because right? the context we're talking about is Christian. See, for Paul, 
A flourishing church is this, which is our first and it's our only point. This is it. They are trusting in Jesus and they have a love for each other. That's what Paul was looking for. That's the markers. You can't say you trust in Jesus Christ and reject his people. You can't say you are a strong Christian in the Lord, to be more precise here, okay, so you can understand what we're getting at. Because trust me, we do reject his people. <laughs> but you can't say you are a strong Christian like, I am a strong, mature Christian. And not have a strong affection for his people. It just doesn't work. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to get along with everyone equally, okay? It's just not going to happen. But it does mean that you have to have a heart that beats for his people, even if there is tensions with someone. So what does it look like then on a very practical level? How can we judge our love for others, for example, in this church? Well, it's the same way that Paul states here in the text. He says at the end of verse, or at the end of verse 6 here that we're looking at, reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. The love that flowed from faith, from the Thessalonians, was that they first did not let bitterness grow in them because the, apostles, because the apostle and his team quickly departed and they were absent in the Thessalonians' major distress. Instead, the Thessalonians chose to love the apostle and team by giving them the benefit of the doubt Remembering them kindly. See, love thinks of the best of the other rather than the worst. Love dwells on the good and not the wrongs or the shortcomings of a person. Or as 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Ooh, just stop there. It's not irritable. Ooh, it's not resentful. Ah, man, I, something pushing me down. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And these people, even with their horrible circumstances of life, with all the hard persecution coming upon them, their life stunk. They, through faith in Christ, were able to deeply love those who were forced to abandon them. That brought them, essentially, in this situation in the first place. That then abandoned them They didn't get angry towards them, even in their most desperate moments. My family is in pain, but I'm not going to hold that against those who brought me this message of grace. 
Now, I'm sure the Thessalonians, they could have easily come up with excuses or reasons or justifications as why Paul should have stayed. Hey, we're about to die. Why isn't this dude about to die? Or think that by Paul not coming and only sending Timothy in his place, they could have think of, well, that's just an excuse of fear or he's not truly caring or whatever. I mean, we're good at making stuff up. But rather, they chose to love him and give him the benefit of the doubt that his reasons was justified. I mean, think of it this way. Mark 12, 31 says this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, we love saying that passage. You know, right? Because what does it mean? It means you presume the best of yourself, right? I mean, I always presume the best of myself. You justify yourself for what you do in the best light. You're like, well, I had to. Why? Because we love ourselves. So then, right, just like that, the way we deal with ourselves, love your neighbor as yourself, we need then, Jesus says, to presume the best in others and lean into the first thought of justifying what they did in the best light out of love for them rather than just assuming the negative right off the bat without any type of investigation or conversing with them. Too many times when people are not there in our lives, okay, this is practical, are not there in our lives when we need them the most, or when people do not come through to meet our expectations, we so easily just assume the worst in them rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt as to why they could not meet us or help us in our need or speak with us in our distress to give us some type of comfort or counsel that we're looking for. I mean, isn't that one of the main issues why we get into arguments in the first place with people? It's because in that moment, we think, you're not doing what I need in this moment. So obviously, you must be intentionally doing it to hurt me or offend me. We just go straight to the negative when things go wrong. Rather than giving them the grace and the benefit of thinking, well, maybe there's a good justification as to what they did or did not do in that moment or situation. But like these Thessalonians, which Paul praised, we should presume the best with people as our first thought or our response in any mishaps. Especially, especially, Especially with our brothers and sisters in the faith. I mean, church, right, should be the one place where we go that we don't have to feel like we have to justify everything we do before people. Constantly being on the defense justifying all of our actions, defending ourselves on how we live or what we said or who we are and why we didn't do what we did and so on and so on. The church should be, that's what we're in, we call this what? The sanctuary. A sanctuary, if you will. Where we come and we can know people are thinking the best of us even with our shortcomings and faults and quirks and mishaps and strangeness. Of course, you're not all strange. I'm just a strange one. And when those shortcomings and those sins are revealed to us or they come out, 
We can know that people will lovingly uplift us in Jesus, thinking upon ways to benefit us in the Lord by helping us and guiding us to rest in the unconditional forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. Saying to us, it is finished in him. Telling us the power of sin has been broken. Telling us that you are unconditionally loved by God despite your sins and failures. Reminding us to just look to Jesus by faith, to remember that we are fully forgiven by his grace, by faith alone. Rather than coming to church, we get pushed down to fall upon a bed of nails so that it can just trample us over and over again by some type of self-righteous superiority. Saying, how could you do that? I would never do that. Christians could never commit that. What's wrong with you? How could you struggle with that? Now we as with the Thessalonians then are to presume the best in our brothers and sisters out of love for them. So I ask you, is that how you treat, I don't know, each other in this church? Is that how you treat your believing spouse? If they interrupt you or say something that you don't care for? Is that how you treat your believing kids? Older, younger, whatever. And they do something that you didn't think was right. Is that how you treat your believing family members? Is that how you treat your believing neighbors, work, believing workmates? Or are we quick to judge, quick to bite back? Or are we holding on to things in bitterness, just holding on to things in bitterness, presuming the worst, and never even talking about it? Tough questions, but definitely good ones to ponder as we interact with people, especially our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because if we're honest, we would have to admit we generally don't presume the best in our brethren as much as we should, but rather we tend to presume the negative and promote bitterness in our hearts towards them. More than, more than we want to admit with each other. The thing is, we're just good at hiding it, putting on a fake smile. So we stay away from them in some sense, whether that's emotionally, mentally, or physically. Which leads into Paul's next highlight of loving each other. Paul's highlights their love by speaking of their Longing to see each other. See, both Paul and the Thessalonians longed or greatly yearned to gather in fellowship together. To see each other face to face. Or put differently, they longed to grow in loving relationship with each other. See, deep faith, I like to say we, some of, well, maybe not all, but a good portion likes to say, I have a deep faith in Christ. Deep faith in Christ produces a deep yearning for loving relationships with his people. I'll say it again. Deep faith in Christ produces a deep yearning for, a loving, for loving relationships with his people. Now again, not maybe all on the same level, but there's a yearning there nonetheless to all Christians in some loving relational capacity. 
The Christian life is not lived in isolation from God's people. Why? Because through faith in Christ, you will have a love for his people. It's a guarantee. It's a consequence. What happens? You will want to hang with them, speak with them, pray with them, or maybe just be with them. You don't have to be the, an extrovert, but just, just be there. Now, I'm not saying you'd want to be with them 24-7, okay? I'm, that's, you know, that's impossible. You have to go home. You have to go to work. You have to go on a date with your spouse. If you haven't, I encourage it. It's been a while. Do it. Hang out with your kids. No matter what age they are, you, need to have, you do need to have some downtime in your life to relax a little bit. It's okay to turn on the TV and relax, right? That's, but what I am saying is making a habit to miss out on gatherings, for example, on Sunday, should feel awkward, should be weird, should be a little bit of a disappointment. For your heart should beat out of longing to be with his people, even if you can't gather with them for some medical or life situation. Right? The, it's, it's the heart of the yearning. Right? Sometimes you just can't. Life just won't let you. Hence Paul. Paul couldn't go to the Thessalonians. He wasn't in sin because he couldn't get there. The sin comes when you don't want to be there. Whether this church or any church, we're not the only godly church out there, FYI. Well, let me put it to you differently. Does your heart long to leave, right? Does your heart long, yearn to leave church as fast as you can so you can get away from his people? Does your heart begrudgingly gather with others and then look to and long to create opportunities to not really be with them so you don't have to make a new loving relationship? Is church just a place you come, get what you want? Kind of like a consumerism, shop at wherever. And then you just leave to move on to the next great thing because you're really longing to be anywhere else than with God's people. That wasn't the goal, or at least part of it. Because you really don't want or have a deep care for those around you. No real desire to see how you can pray for others throughout the week. No real desire to see how you maybe you can emotionally or whatever, physically, support others. No real desires to see how you can lift up others who have gathered around you at church. These are hard questions. They're good questions. Because again, I don't think we are as good as we think we are at this lovingly longing to be together stuff. At least not to the point what Paul is pointing out in this text. Because notice, it was to all the Thessalonians he was longing for, and all the Thessalonians were long longing to be with him back. Which means the annoying Christians. Yes, there are annoying Christians. The hard Christians, yes, there are hard Christians. None of you are annoying, none of you are hard. Okay, I'm just talking about myself. The harsh ones. The immature ones. Let me tell you, I fit all of those qualities. 
willing to die. Because I'm a sinner just like everyone else. But there was a longing from all of them towards him and they towards them. Paul is praising them here, not for a once in a while thing of love and longing, but apparently it was a consistent, constant loving and longing. This love for each other is not, out, not some one of the time things when things are going okay in life or you happen to like those groups of people. Liking and loving are two separate things, just another side. But a constant characteristic of the Christian and the church, that's what it was, even when things were hard and brutal. So if you ponder that for a moment, what was just what we're talking about here, what Paul has written, what Paul is saying here that seems so awesome and so nice, like, oh, loving each other, hmm, it's actually kind of horrifying. Because that's really tough to live out, what he's putting here. These aren't just words of flattery. Because I know, even as a pastor, my love can be better for the brethren. And I fail at expressing this type of deep love and affection and deep longing for God's people in my own life. And I'm a pastor. And guess what? If you're honest, you have a hard time doing the same thing. Sure, we can do it with some people, the really nice ones, the kind ones, the ones who like us, and we happen to like them back. But with all of them, and all the time, like what's written here in the text, right? I'm not making, I'm just saying what's showing, what's in the text. See, this constant law of love then we fail at it. Because all of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, as we interact with other Christians in our lives, I'm, I'm sorry. That's the truth. If you think you're doing good, we should talk. So really then, the question, and when we're looking at this, you're not, so you're saying, the question is not, is it possible to live out what Paul is describing here? That's not the question. That's not what I'm getting at, okay? I'm not asking if it's possible. The question is this, are you living it out at all to the extent that's being stated? Are you doing it? Not if, it's are you all the time? And if you're honest, you'll have to say no, we can do better. So what are we, are, what are we to do then? How are we to grow in love for the brethren? How can we pursue flourishing as a church more and more like the Thessalonians? Well, I got good news for you, and his name is Jesus. See, as we admit, hopefully seeing where our failings of love are, that we're not as good as we think we are, by looking at this text, we are then to look by faith to the one who was perfect for us. In this very thing we're growing about today. Look to Christ, how he has fulfilled every law and every requirement before God for you. Even this very law of love and longing for each other, he has fulfilled it all for us before the Father. And even as we fail in this, guess what? It's not held against you. 
It's not held against me. Because Christ has taken all the punishment for our sins, even the sin of being unloving towards all the brethren and longing to be with them. So when we stand before God then on judgment day, he will say, you loved perfectly, even when you didn't, because Christ did it for you. The gospel is good news for cold-hearted sinners such as us. For God loves sinners, and the cross is the proof. And when we dwell upon that, looking at what Jesus, out of love, has done for us sinners, this very law of love then, which we so pitifully live out on our own power, will by a consequence, through faith in Christ, be mightily empowered in us towards each other, far beyond what we could ever dare to imagine or think on our own. Because we're too busy looking upon Jesus and not ourselves. Our focus would be on him and wanting others to look towards him. For truly, what hinders our love for each other and for others is you. You get in the way. Because life becomes all about you. And really, it needs to be all on Jesus. When we focus on Jesus, how he has done everything for us, when we begin to live by his power and live in the truth that he does take care of everything, for his blood has covered everything about you, past, present, future. As Colossians 3.3 says, your life is hidden with, hidden with Christ in God. So even if you fail at all of this loving stuff, if you have faith in Christ, God will not abandon you. His he will not love you any less, nor will he hold anything against you, but rather just give you grace upon grace, all out of his love for you, a sinner. The gospel is good news. Good news. So now we're going to go ahead and take the Lord's Supper, which is a great resemblance and, and represents how Christ has done it all for us. So I'm going to ask the deacon.